Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Uh, with me again is my friend and previous guest, Aubrey Boom. She's a licensed mental health therapist and a life coach and a good friend of mine. And um, we're pushing this out on Thanksgiving Day because um, there was a very powerful post that Aubrey had on Facebook a week ago. And so we threw this together. This is actually Sunday morning before Thanksgiving and just thought this was an important topic to talk about and uh, just yeah, for the holidays, just to get it out there. And so Aubrey, welcome and thanks for being a guest. And I so appreciate you making the time to talk about this today. Absolutely. When you ask me to do something, I'm there. <laughs> Cool. And um, I'll shoot us, I'll capture a screenshot for your post and want to share this so people can have it. But let's just get into it. What was it about? I don't want to take any thunder away from it. So what was your post about? It was about suicide and how oftentimes the holidays can make those feelings of isolation and depression and hopelessness even more severe. And oftentimes people call it the holiday blues, but it can be very serious for those that are already on the verge and feeling despair. Yeah, I've, I've been there. Um, Two years ago, Christmas, I was um, at the kind of three months into a separation and a divorce and Thanksgiving was okay because that was, I don't know, to me, that's not, as emotional of a holiday. Um, But I remember that, excuse me, going into Christmas that year, uh, my kids were not with me and just, yeah, there's just something about Christmas, whether it's the lights or the carols or, you know, all the movies on Lifetime. I don't know what it was, but I was very aware that uh, that Christmas was going to be a challenge. It was definitely going to be a challenge. I think that Christmas also, Christmas is a time of connection and everyone's together and there's this holiday spirit. And when you are already feeling disconnected and when you are already feeling loss, trauma, whatever it is, for whatever reason, Christmas amplifies that. And it's, you see people together, families together. And if you've you know, experienced a great loss, if you are in the depths of depression or another mental health issue, it shows you how much you are not where you want to be. It shows you that you are not connected. It shows you that you should be happy. You should be excited. You should be joyful, yet you're not. And you already know that. And so I think that's part of what the holidays bring for those that are already struggling severely. Yeah. It's funny that you talk about the, you know, where somebody's not. And I remember that uh, going through my first divorce um, 12 years ago, something like that. I remember having my counselor and Claire, I I was telling her that, you know, I, I should be feeling better. I was staying home with the kids at the time. And I think they were maybe three and eight, you know, kind of in that range. And I want to say that it was summer and I'd walked my son to school and I was playing with my daughter 
and it was just a nice summer day. And, and I just remember telling her like, I should be happy. Like I'm, 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 I have this list of all these things that should make me feel wonderful and should feel happy about. And she, and I just said, I'm not like, I just felt like I was going to burst into tears driving over here. And I'm looking at the, this day and like, why am I miserable? And she just, and this was, and I remember this and I tell people this all the time. This is one of those transformational moments. And she just said, that's where you are right now. And she said, don't beat yourself up about feeling bad in the moment because, and she illustrated it further. She said something to the effect that sometimes you're the only one that's going to be looking out for you. And if you're beating yourself up on top of everything else that's happening, you're not helping yourself. And she just said to um, embrace it and acknowledge it and just look at it and, and not make it worse than it is and just say, well, I guess right now and today in this hour, I'm not feeling very good and that's okay. She gave me the, the tools to sort of accept that that was uh, how I was feeling and it was in the moment. I remember feeling that exact same way. I struggled severely with depression for 20 years and most people wouldn't think that of me now because I don't have depression anymore, even though I, you know, certainly have transient symptoms of it, but it used to be so bad. I didn't want to get up in the morning, morning after morning, after morning, after morning. And I remember thinking the same thing. Why do I feel this way? Mm-hmm. There's nothing There's nothing in my life right now that is so traumatic that I should be in this state. But looking back on this, there were several variables, but one of them was unresolved trauma. Mm. And I, I didn't have the, the skills at that time to realize that because things in my past had happened in my past and I had gone on and I was, you know, a mother at that time. And on the outside, I was functioning. People didn't know what was going on within me and those things that happened in the past and I was good and I was working and I was, you know, doing all the things that we do. But that root of deep, deep trauma had never been uprooted. And that was something that stayed with me for years until I finally was able to pinpoint that and access that. And on the flip side of that, there's actually something that is still going on within me that needs to be still uprooted. And it doesn't manifest as depression anymore. But now I understand those feelings in my body through somatic psychotherapy. So it's just, it's very interesting how our mind, body, and spirit are so connected. And when we're in that place of despair, sometimes we, we don't have the wherewithal to understand what's really going on. And that's when somebody on the outside who is um, well-versed in this can come in and help. Agreed. And it was a hard thing for me to admit and to understand that I was not perfect and I didn't have it. I didn't have a handle on it. And the minute that I 
let go of that. It wasn't an easy thing. It was not flicking a light switch, but it took um, months and months to get to this point that, um, yeah, to, to admit that I needed help and ask for it. And then beyond that, accept that help. And that was not an easy thing to get to. What, what helped you the most? Oh, I don't know that I could um, pinpoint it to one particular thing, but some of the, some of the signposts or the, the, the markers that I remember and keep going back to were that, um, so let me, I'll back up, I'll jump on the time machine and go back maybe 15, 20 years. So back then I was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and I, I say that uh, very jokingly, but I, I hadn't been tested with anything in my life. Uh, my mom had died when I was 20, and I thought that um, I got a free pass from the universe because I'd been through that trauma, but I'd never been tested. And so being, I think probably in my mid-30s, um, married with two kids, a job and a house, and I look back on that and I wasn't really an adult and I hadn't been tested. And so I remember sitting in the, the marriage therapist's office with um, my wife at the time. And we had both sort of landed on this stalemate and it wasn't angry and it was sort of just, well, I guess this is where we're at that the, the the marriage was sort of over, but like neither one really wanted to end it, <clears throat> but realizing that at some point very soon, it was going to start the divorce process. And I just remember sitting there and expressing this, that uh, if th- there's no point in working on the marriage anymore, And I needed to start working on myself to save myself. And so just resigning is not the right word, but I guess accepting, accepting that the the relationship was over, but me and my life and my work was not over. And I needed to focus on that. And that was really transformational. And also not blaming <clears throat> my wife at the time for like, Oh, you did this and this is your fault. And, and just sort of separating, like, I call it dumping out my backpack, right? Like you've only got so much room to carry stuff in around with you every single day and looking at that and saying, okay, this is mine. This is yours. You know, what do I own? And really getting to that flashpoint of, man, I, and not saying like, I don't like who I am. I I think I said, I'm okay, but I want to be better. And that was, and I look back on all the books and the, everything that I've read. And it it was such a a vague, fuzzy, nebulous concept of uh, self-improvement that it's, it's been a thread through everything that I've consumed since that moment, but just wanting to be better. 
but not saying I'm bad, just saying I want to get better. And those were, <clears throat> excuse me, those are probably the, um, the most powerful things. And going through this again, two years ago, I, I was so much better equipped. It doesn't mean that the pain was any less. I just had better tools around me. So I kind of unpacked my emergency kit again. And it, like I said, it didn't make it any easier, but it made it like, like I, I had the emergency supplies to weather the storm a little bit better. How did your depression manifest itself? What were your symptoms? Well, um, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you and, and I'll, I'll ask the question and I'll answer it. And then I want you to answer it too, was like the signs of depression. But for me, um, I'm very active and positive, um, not naive, but just, um, I think whenever I'm faced with a challenge, like I can admit that it's going to be tough and it might suck and it's going to take a lot of work. Um, <clears throat> very energetic <clears throat> and wanting to get out and move and be around people. And I think for me being situationally depressed meant that I was lethargic and I notice it like there's two ways that I'll get out of bed slowly. One is if I've been out too late, stayed up too late and had either um, too much sugar or too much beer the night before. And, you know, maybe a little fuzzy from like a low grade hangover or the other is that if I'm eating healthy and clean and, and drying out for a little while, but I still, like the alarm goes off and I just look out the window. <clears throat> That's when I know that I'm dealing with something that it's more of a, a stillness. That's not from meditation or self-reflection. I just look out the window and I have no direction and I have no motivation. I've got a ton of things to do, <clears throat> but it just feels like, um, trying to pull a, a, a railroad car up a hill by myself. And it's just, I, I can't do it. And that's when I noticed, and, and thankfully I'm aware enough that I realized that, oh, this is what I'm feeling. Okay. And then I kind of reach back into, um, I mean, the first thing that I'll do is just do anything. And it, it comes from, uh, time management or productivity books or anything like that. It's like, you know, the, the journey of a, a thousand miles starts with a single step. And, and I just go, God, just do something, man. Just return an email or um, put the dishes in the dishwasher, just accomplish something and then accomplish the next thing. And so when I'm in a great mood and everything's kind of dialed, like I'll attack the, the biggest, most challenging, fearful thing on my list. But when I'm struggling with that, what I'll do is just anything, arrange the pillows on the sofa or make the bed or do the laundry, just something that will give me that sense of control and 
power and execution that, you know, I can do something. And I've, I've learned that through the years that action is the way out and it's just, it, it, it comes from a book that I, I love and I talk about all the time called deep survival. And it's about people that have survived life and death situations. And it's just making that next most important decision and survivors just keep making decisions and whether they're real or powerful or not, it doesn't matter. It's just decide to, and then what this guy talks about in the book is just that sense of control. And whether it's an illusion for your brain or for your, your psyche or whatever, but if you're making a decision, you have some degree of control. And so that's what I'll just start doing is just trying to embrace it and go, man, today's like a low energy day or I'm sad. And then do something about it. Just try just, man. And sometimes I'll tell you what, Aubrey, it's like, to simply, and this happened three weeks ago, just to simply swing my legs out to, to throw the comforter off and swing my legs around and get my feet on the floor. That was like a, a half hour ordeal. And when I say ordeal, I don't think I'm overselling that. It was just like, oh, man. So like that's those are my signs, my symptoms. And, um, and, and this is where I would ask for like your, your clinical signs of depression. So anyway, that's, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> well, it's crazy because that's me or that was to me as well. And what you said about making decisions is so powerful. How I got out of that was changing my mind. It was every single decision. And when you're in it, you feel like you can't do it, but you can. And that's how you get out of it. And it seems so simplistic. And for whatever reason, humans feel if something is too simple, that it isn't effective and they blow it off. No, it's every little decision, exactly what you said, like about putting your legs down on the ground. That's huge. We could talk for hours on that. But some of the symptoms of depression are that they have no, they're in hopelessness, they're in despair. They often um, alter their eating habits, either eating too much or too little. They have problems with their sleep, either sleeping too much, poor quality sleep, sleeping too little, they're no longer interested in the things that they used to be interested in. They isolate. Um, they just really become a shell of who they were and they're no longer connected. And we are social beings and we're made for connection. And the further and further that they spiral into those behaviors, the harder and harder it can be to get yourself out the deeper the hole, the further you have to climb. But those are some of the, some of the symptoms. But what, what's interesting is that there's different kinds of depression. Like you were speaking earlier about circumstantial depression and that ties into suicide. Some people, 
become suicidal because of what is going on in their life, whether severe bullying, whether a deep loss of a loved one, a loss of a job, uh, socioeconomic hardships, that's more circumstantial. And then there's others that have this abiding suicidal ideation where it's always there and it's not really correlated with what's going on in their lives. And that's a, a different beast, though many of the remedies are similar. And when you are in that place, you don't believe that you can do anything. You don't believe that your life can get better. It, it seems the gap is too wide. And what also doesn't get enough play are those of us that have somebody in our lives that is suicidal. And that kind of pain and that kind of isolation doesn't get, doesn't get the help it needs. And when you're in that position, you don't usually reach out because you don't want anybody to know of this loved one of yours that is dealing with this. And that is something that I would like to bring more awareness to because there's so many of us struggling with that and we don't know what to do. When you've come to the end of what you you know and you finally realize that you're somewhat helpless to this. So that's a whole other beast that we could dissect a little bit if we want as well. But what you said about the decisions is huge. But what do you do when that doesn't work? What do you do when somebody has tried everything that they think that they know and they've somewhat given up? And since I have personally dealt with all sides of this and am dealing with all sides of this, I have what I'm doing my research in currently is expanded states of consciousness. And I didn't begin that because of this topic, but it is very effective for deep depression because it's a way to get to the root of trauma, which we spoke about earlier. And people that are in deep depression and despair and don't have any other recourse and are really considering taking their lives, it can be the one thing that changes everything because it's more somatic and it's getting into not just your brain, but into your body. And so it was on the fringe of therapy for all of these years, but the FDA has allowed clinical trials in these last few years. And we're hoping that very soon in 2020 that they will approve it. So right now they're doing studies and MDMA for veterans with PTSD and complex PTSD. And there are also what is set up is to also do trials with psilocybin and ayahuasca and other compounds such as that. So I know that kind of veers off of what we we're talking about, but for anyone listening that is at the end and has tried everything, oh, also ketamine therapy is a great one as well. 
So I don't know if you want to talk further on that or if I'm going too off topic for you. No, um, I think that's that's fascinating because Tim Ferriss talks a lot about that. And for my own education, MDMA stands for what? Again, I've heard the term and I think I know what it is, but I, I don't know the letters. It's too long of a word for me, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's too early for that right I'll, now. I'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really, it's quite good. Um, MAPS, which is a multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, they are, the, they are the ones that are heading this, and they're out of UC Santa Cruz. And what they're doing is there's two therapists, and they're the ones who are performing the sessions and then there's a site that has you know a couch and a chair and everything that you need for this and then you also need a place for them to stay overnight there and then a physician with a DEA license so that is what is needed for each site and then it's about eight hours you have your pre-sessions and then you do the therapy with either the MDMA or what else is indicated and that lasts for about eight hours that's with both therapists and then you have the post sessions the integration um, afterwards and it's been very effective and for those that you know aren't well versed in this it can seem extreme but what's happening with somebody who is so deeply suicidal or who has complex PTSD, that is what's severe. That is what needs to be addressed. And these other compounds, you know, we've been told that they have been illegal and that, you know, that they're scary. They are not scary. What's scary is what's going on within somebody's soul. And I, yeah, I'm hoping that this really gets gains traction and comes more into the mainstream so that we can help the people that so desperately need it. Well, one of the things that was different between my two divorces is that the first time I didn't tell anybody, I was so embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was thinking, well, how can I, um, how can I tell anybody this? You know, I'll, you know, people will think I'm a failure. And the minute that I did, that was the start of um, getting help. And what that did for me is when I finally started talking about it, <clears throat> I learned that I was not the only one that was going through it. I was not the only one that um, had experienced that. And what it did is like when I was sharing that, it made me feel better in that moment. Now I would have to leave that person and come home and, and deal with it on my own, but at least I had a break from it. Right. And the, the second time, two years ago, I started calling everybody. I just remembered, I think I was driving to Fort Collins and I just was like on speed dial. I just started talking to everybody. And it was like that day, like I just didn't wait to reach out to ask for help. And, um, and I, I don't want to go like into advice mode too much because I'm talking outside of my skill set. But I would just suggest to people like, you know, there's so many people that care about 
any particular individual. And it could be, you know, coworker or, um, geez, even like a stranger at the bar or at the restaurant or, and just take that step over. And I know it's hard because you're exposing yourself to being judged and being, um, you know, open and vulnerable. But if that person doesn't respond the way that you need or the way that you want, or does in fact judge you for being depressed or suicidal, then, you know, simply fold that piece of paper up for that person metaphorically, and then set that aside and go find somebody else. And yeah. And to the MDMA and the psilocybin, like, yeah, it, it just ties back to, the decisions, there's always one more thing you can do, one more decision. And um, it, it's very easy for you and I to sit here and say that and just, you know, and I, I like to just acknowledge how tough it is, right? And this is, but it's so important if you feel like you haven't found that next step, there it's out there. Just keep looking, just don't ever give up. It is. And I like what you said about reaching out. The people that I see, it's a continual stream. Everybody has some connection to depression. Most of us have experienced depression to some level. And it's that connection. Most people want to help. Most people want to be there. And it is nice. It's when you, it normalizes it when you realize how many other people care. And, and will be there for you. What you said about the next step is crucial as well. There was a documentary about those who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge but survived. And the main thing, what so many of them said was that as they were falling, they had this crystal clear realization that any problem in their life could be solved except for the water beneath them. And <laughs> that's, that's telling, you know, like we, we have this veil over ourselves. We have this deep fog over ourselves when we're in the depths of depression, but it all can be solved. It's that, decision it's taking one more step when I decided it was when I got sober when that happened I just made this well let's go back a little bit when I was 14 I made the conscious decision that suicide would never be an option for me and for me to make that decision while I was 14 um goes to show what was going on in my life at that time. Um, my sister had just been killed. And then the things that happened after that were as disturbing, if not more so. And this all happened in a very, very short time, but I never talked about those other things. And so that cast me into a situation that was um, beyond my skill set at that time and I remember being in a park alone and I was so desperately overwhelmed 
with the darkness that I was scared for myself. And I remember being in that park and I don't know why, I don't know why I went this way instead of the other, but I made a decision that I would never do it. It just wasn't going to be an option for me at all because those thoughts had been in my mind. And strangely, that stuck. And so throughout the years, that was my hardest time in life. And then my other hardest time was when I was 37, 38. And I just never allowed that as an option. So I had to find other options. And when I got sober, I was desperately depressed. I was, I mean, we'd be here for hours talking about everything that was going on at that time. I was completely isolated. It was just a very difficult time. And I made the conscious decision, like, I cannot live like this anymore. I, I will not live like this anymore. And since suicide wasn't an option, I decided, I made that decision in the depths of withdrawal and in the depths of despair and depression and anxiety that I was going to find an answer. I was going to find an answer because I wasn't going to live like this. I was done with it. I had lived for 37 years a way that I wasn't proud of, that didn't serve me. And I thought, am I going to live and die like this? Am I going to live and die in addiction? Am I going to live and die in depression? Am I going to live and die in, in behaviors that are embarrassing? And not only embarrassing like to the public, but just to me, like this wasn't, I knew I had something else within me. And so I made the decision to find out, but I didn't even know where to start. I honestly didn't. And so I started, you know, researching some things online and I would just click on one link and that's how I got into energy. That's how I got into the field that I'm in right now. As I realized that there were other concepts out there that I was not aware of. And most of those concepts were things that I had boohooed in my past because I didn't have enough information about it. And that's what people do with anything, with any kind of therapy, with any kind of concept outside of their, their, like what, what really happens is somebody will know one or two things about a concept, let's say meditation, and they'll say, oh, that isn't for me. Or, or something maybe metaphysical, and they think, oh, that's woo-woo, it's for people, you know, with, take your crystals and go home, that kind of stuff. But I was in such a state of brokenness that I was just basically broken open to anything. I had decided I would try anything. And that, that was the foundation that I was able to build a new life on. Because I was no longer closed off. I was no longer unaccepting. I was going to study and research and open my mind to anything that might help me. And those were the beginnings of my new life. And now I'm able to help other people that are in that cave of blackness. And I no longer would ever label myself with any kind of depression, anxiety, even though I have those, those, you know, thoughts and those feelings at times, it is, they're so transient now. 
and I wake up in the morning and I don't have that feeling. I don't take 30 minutes anymore to put my legs down. That used to be an everyday occurrence when I was in the depths of depression. And I'm joyful. I'm jazzed to get up. I have a completely different outlook on life and a different joy and a different spirit within me. But I know that I would have never gotten this had I not made those little decisions, like what you were talking about, unloading the dishwasher or things of that sort. It's even those little tiny steps that all add up. But people usually want something huge that's going to take them from the depths of despair to the highest heights. But that's not how that's not how it works. That's not how anything works. You don't climb the ladder of success in one day. And so just that that's what happened for me. And I was very aware of each of the steps that I took and I documented the things that I did because I was rebuilding a life intentionally. That was my goal in life. That's what I was doing. Work, school, like family, anything else came secondary because I knew if I didn't do this, I it, what was it worth? Like, what is life worth if you're not if you're not moving towards peace? And I think most people don't really. They don't sit down and analyze what's really happening and what needs to happen. And it's each, it's each decision that needs to happen. It's those little, little decisions. And that's also where somebody on the outside can help you because sometimes we're too far down. We're not sure. We're not sure where to turn next, what little decision to do. But anyway, that's a little bit about my journey. Well, and like for me, um, and I want to be, you know, not preaching. I just try to relate it in terms of personal experience. Like for me, it was <clears throat> the acceptance that I was dealing with something traumatic and the, you know, and working to get to the awareness that I didn't have the skills that I needed. And I, I, I work in analogies a lot. Like it helps me understand things like nobody is born an airline pilot and they have to go through training and simulations and skills and, and all this. And I think perhaps it might be a misconception for people that at 14, when your sister is killed or at 30 or at, 48 going through a divorce that you know exactly what to do. Nobody comes out of the womb and grows up with these training manuals for here's what you need to do. And, and I, I, when I say these things, trust me, I do not say them that I arrived at them easily, but to know what to do in those situations was hard to admit that, Man, I don't know what the fuck is going on here. <laughs> uh-huh. I feel that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and then to to get back to the 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 topic of suicide, um I remember my first marriage and it was like 3 a.m. on I don't even know what day it was, but it was 3 or 4 a.m. and 
if you're awake at three or 4 AM, nothing good is happening. Like you're either coming home from the, <laughs> you're either coming home from the bar or, you know, you're, um, sick or you're awake cause you can't sleep. And it was like, I think it was like three thirty seven. now that I say that. And, uh, my wife at the time was in the other bedroom and the kids were upstairs and it had been perhaps weeks or months that, you know, I'd been going through this and not sleeping and falling asleep for like 30 minutes and waking up and thinking it's morning and going, Oh God, it's only 1130 and I'm still wide awake now. And like in that moment, that was the the first time that I would say that I don't think I was suicidal. I just wanted, I wanted like one day of peace, right? Like I didn't want these thoughts in my head. And it was the first time that I could sympathize and empathize with somebody that was suicidal. But I was like understanding how dark that actually was. I mean, it was literally dark because it was three 30 and it was emotionally and physically dark. And I just was so exhausted and I, I didn't want it to end. I just wanted a break. And then two years ago, um, I remembered, you know, this was a little bit stronger. I just remembered thinking that, you know, do I want to go on and if I want to go on and had kind of expressed that. And, you know, and I've talked to my kids about this. They're 22 and 17 now. And I just, again, very candid, like taking the, the stigma off of this and showing them that their dad's not perfect. And just saying, you know, I, I was really struggling with this and this is kind of what I felt. And I just wanted to tell you guys that, you know, it was, it felt hopeless in that moment, but it's okay to have these thoughts and just reach out and talk about it. And I've had two friends over the course of my life. One was probably 15, 20 years ago. And one was a few years ago. And I don't think anybody has not been touched by either the thoughts or by someone else you know, killing themselves and it's terrible. It sucks. I'm glad that you spoke to your kids about it. I wish that more of us would be open about speaking about suicide because so many people won't bring it up because they're embarrassed or, or the people who are dealing with someone in their life that is suicide they want to protect that person and they don't want anybody to know and on and on. But there's 123 suicides a day throughout the world. The World Health Organization estimates 800,000 to a million suicides every year around the globe. This isn't something that is isolated. This is something, it's a shared human experience. And we, most of us, have it one point or another really had feelings of suicide or seriously considered it. And perhaps if people didn't feel alone in that, they would reach out more because the stigma wouldn't be there. But also sometimes when people broach the subject of suicide, people go into overload and want to admit them to a hospital. And sometimes they just want to speak about it. And I'm not meaning to 
you know, lessen the severity of it. If somebody is actively suicidal, yes, you they need help. But sometimes people just want to speak about it. They, like what you were just saying. They just want to talk like, I just want this to end. I just want a break. And there doesn't seem to be somewhere in the middle. People either don't speak about it or everyone is, you know, they have this hypervigilance about it. And so I think a lot of people don't want to talk about it as well because they don't want somebody to respond in that way and perhaps want to admit them and then tell other people and make it into a bigger deal. And I'm not at all listening like it isn't a big deal. But I'm just saying for like the place that you were in, you know, you weren't actively suicidal. You didn't have a plan. You didn't have means. But on the flip side of that, real quick, if somebody is actively suicidal, one of the best preventative measures is taking away the means to it. Um, and the next is getting help for mental health. And the next is getting help for substance abuse because the greatest percentage of those who complete suicide have mental health issues and substance abuse issues, often alcohol. And those two comorbidly together is is a recipe for disaster. Oh yeah. Well, um, I've had a couple people sort of, um, not sort of, they've expressed that, you know, recently. And I wanted your take on, I guess, maybe best practices, you know, they're telling me this and, um, my first response, I was, I don't overreact typically, but I was trying to be very controlled and supportive and just trying to accept them expressing that to me and just why are you feeling this way and just let both of them talk about it. Um, and I guess maybe for something tangible for people that are listening, let's say that somebody calls or emails or texts or in person just simply goes, Hey, I'm thinking about killing myself. Things are awful. And I'm thinking about doing it. What would be, you know, from your perspective, the best way to react and to help that person? I get this often. And what you just said is the first, the first order of business. Allow somebody to talk. Allow them to tell you what's really going on. Don't try to give advice. Don't overreact. Just let somebody truly talk and connect with them. And at the end of that, Approach the subject of mental health. Are they seeking treatment for mental health? Is it effective? What have they tried? Are they on medications? Are those effective? Have they considered alternative treatments? And then substance and alcohol abuse. Are they actively using substances? Do they drink? Once you get down to that, actually asking them if they have a plan and let me just sidebar really quick if you think that somebody is suicidal and they're talking that way but haven't actually said that you asking them straight out if they are considering taking their lives is not going to make them take their lives like if somebody asked me if i was suicidal i'm not suicidal and i'm not going to do it 
people are afraid to do that. But just asking somebody straight out, it's something that most people won't do because they're too afraid. Do that. Okay, so then asking people that have told you that they are thinking of taking their lives, asking them if they have a plan. You know, do they have means to carry it out? When are they thinking of doing this? Really go through it. If they actively have a plan for suicide, that's when you need to take action. If somebody is just telling you that they are feeling that way, yes, it's certainly cause for concern. You want to follow up with them. You want to make sure that they don't have a plan, that they are not actively seeking to kill themselves. If they do, then you want to, you know, go through the means of taking the method away and getting outside help for them. And I think just knowing that they're not alone. I think that's incredibly powerful too. And yeah. And I remember one friend saying, you know, at the end of it, we talked for an hour at a restaurant, maybe even longer. And he just said, thanks for not freaking out. It's huge. And I know that people, so we're talking more, most of our conversation has been about just the feelings of suicide. But for those that, for whatever reason, are to a level that they cannot, they've tried everything that they think that they've, they they think that they've tried everything. And for those family members and loved ones that are having to deal with this constantly, I can't really encourage them enough if talk therapy and medication has not been at all effective to try these other these other methods, which would be ketamine therapy and then the MDMA therapy and things of that sort. Now, ketamine therapy is something that, you know, it's like the MDMA and the expanded states of consciousness, it's more difficult to get into those trials. But if you research ketamine therapy, that is something that you can go do. And it can be very effective for those that are too far down the well that they, they need more help than what you and I are talking about. And most people don't know of these therapies and it needs to be out there because these are things that can bring it out of the body. And so much of our trauma is stored in our bodies. And that is not a mainstream thought. And that is not something in this Western world that has been in the literature too much. But sometimes we cannot access what is going on within us just through our minds and just through talking. It is deeper than that. And if you can't uproot that, it's going to always stay there. And that's what so many people have not been informed of. We are body, mind, and spirit beings. And when you don't access one of those domains, you're, you're not accessing where that issue is lying. And it, this is a huge this would be a huge breakthrough for many people that are listening that these other methods are not effective for. The somatic psychotherapy is something that needs to, to marry in with traditional psychotherapy. And I know, I mean, we can speak about this further. I know we don't have a, a lot of time, but this is something that I am passionate about. This is where I'm doing my research. And this is something that I feel could 
greatly change those people's lives that feel that they have tried everything and that there's no hope because there is something else. Yeah, I would love to talk about that as a part three because I had done a, a PTSD episode last year and um, I think for for Christmas this year, I'm going to reach back out to um, uh, Trey, who's a psychologist, psychiatrist at uh, the Army Hospital up here and dive into that on the PTSD side for a, a Christmas Day release. But yeah, again, hearing you know Tim Ferriss talk about it and uh, having some veteran friends that uh, I know they've told me they're struggling with PTSD. I'm I'm fascinated by that. So I would love to um, schedule a, an in-depth uh, part three about that with you. Sounds fantastic. Well, and I was um, you know, waking up this morning thinking about. Um, sort of where these conversations with you were going to go. And again, sort of admitting to myself that I you know, needed help and didn't have the skills at several times in my life. And the, uh, the quote that popped into my head, and I, I, I'm a big follower of um, stoicism and, and sort of, you know, not, I wouldn't say I'm a zealot on it. Like there's some things that don't really fit with me, but thinking about, in sort of embracing that this is your challenge and um, that you must keep struggling and admitting that it's a struggle, right? Like that was one of the things that I had to understand is that life is generally wonderful, but there's going to be times that are a challenge and that are going to be sad and, and scary. And, um, I'd first heard this quote in a movie and have, you know, reminded myself about it. And, um, I think Marianne Williamson said like all the, all the, all the photos on my webpage here are showing this like attributed to her, but it's that our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And as I interpret that for myself and I, I keep coming back to this, you know, many, many times throughout the year, it's like, you can handle this. And that's kind of scary. And knowing that I'm the pilot of my ship or, or the captain of my ship, pilot of my plane, whatever the metaphor is, like that can be overwhelming too. But it can also be so deeply encouraging that yeah, you may not know, but yeah, you've got this. And, and, and again, I, when I say things like that, it, this is looking back at a very long, dark tunnel, uh, a mountain that I've climbed that was an absolute struggle. I, I didn't arrive at that easily. And so when I say those things, I hope people listening under are understanding that I say that like, yeah, you've got to climb too because I climbed, but um, just understanding that, yeah, shit's going to be awful, but sometimes it is, but you can handle it and work towards just maybe the awareness that, yeah, you can handle it if nothing else. I love everything that you just said. I could not agree more. And that kind of dives into if you can handle dealing with 
deep feelings of suicide and not take your life, you can handle anything. Like if you have been suicidal up to this point and you're still alive, you can handle anything else that the world throws at you. Exactly. And if you can shift your mindset, yeah, shift your mindset into that. The whole thing is about shifting your mindset for everything. And if you can build your life upon that, like I wanted to actually kill myself. I thought about ending my life. I attempted suicide, like whatever it is. And I didn't do it. You're a badass. You are a badass because you are dealing with more than what most people are dealing with right now. You have more heaviness. You have more heartache. You have more despair and you're still not doing it. Like think of it in that way. I mean, I built my life on rubbish on like just a, you know, a complete firestorm of insanity. And that fuels me right now. If I can deal with some of the things that I dealt with, the things that I never speak of, I can do anything. I love it. <clears throat> Absolutely love it. Well, boom, this has been, um, again, every time that I've talked to you uh, live, I, I think I might actually go for a run. I've already taken a shower, <laughs> but I'm just so fired up about um, just, you know, this connection and how, you know, simply from a couple Instagram posts, we've developed this relationship and this friendship and it's been great. And, um, yeah, like I said, when I read your Facebook post, which I'll, um, grab a screenshot and share it with when I post this episode on Thanksgiving day, it's just, I felt like, um, we had to do this. And so thank you for, um, agreeing to it and, and for everything that you do for me and for everybody else. I adore you, Matt. I will speak live with you anytime. <laughs> I, so, I so enjoy our connection. Awesome. Well, here I'm going to hit stop on the record and then hold on for one second. But um, where can, let me say, where can people find you? Uh, I know you're on Facebook, but uh, you know, for you know, more about uh, MDMA and all this, where can people reach you? AubreyBoom.com. My email is Aubrey at AubreyBoom.com and many people hit me up on Instagram, which is Aubrey underscore Boom. So any of those places is where I dwell. Well, again, thank you so much, Aubrey. And uh, this has just been wonderful. So thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me. It was great.